the forerunner and the first indication of wholesome states. Just as the dawn leads to the sunrise, having what's known as right view or a correct vision of the nature of things, the nature of life, leads automatically to the arising of wholesome states, states such as metta or the other Brahma-viharas. This, in a way, I think, is one of the most beneficial understandings we can have. Rather than thinking of loving-kindness as a feeling or an emotion or a sentiment, it's understanding it as a view of life. It's a vision. It's a question of, of wisdom, of clear seeing. There's a theologian named Howard Thurman who once said, look at the world with quiet eyes, which I loved. I just loved that statement. Look at the world with quiet eyes. I liked it so much that I actually wanted to name my second book that, but the publisher said, oh, no one will understand it because we associate quiet with hearing, not with seeing. But I still maintain it would be a great book title if any of you are writing books. And that, of course, is the nature of much of meditation practice or contemplation. It's to learn to look at the world with quiet eyes, to look at ourselves, our relationship to others, the nature of things with quiet eyes, not needing things to be a certain way so much, not so bound to the past, to the conventional, to the familiar, not having our vision, our view of things distorted by habit, by fear, by desire, to look at the world with quiet eyes. And when we do that, what we discover, in fact, is that we do exist in a world of connection, of interconnectedness, of belonging, that this is actually the nature of things, that Nobody and no thing stands apart, stands alone, is removed from this entire vast web of, of relationship that is life. When we see clearly, then our hearts automatically respond with a very unfeigned, uncontrived, unthought-out level of care, of love, of compassion. There's a very close connection between attention and how we pay attention and love. In many ways, awareness and love or attention and love are very intricately connected. A friend of mine once told me the story about this time when we were living in India then. He went up to Sikkim to see this Tibetan monk known as the Karmapa. And of course, the next incarnation of the Karmapa has been in the news lately because the 14-year-old um, Tulku, the young boy, escaped from Tibet and went to India. But this was the Karmapa in his previous life, um, who was extremely renowned. He was a very eminent, highly respected teacher, monk, and leader. 
So my friend went to Sikkim, which at that time was a protectorate of India, to visit him. And he said that the Karmapa treated his appearance as though it were just about the most important thing that had ever happened to the Karmapa in his life, which it was not. And he said that the Karmapa did that not through great pomp and circumstance or ceremony or anything very glorious. He did it by paying him absolutely undivided, unfragmented, complete attention. The Karmapa was totally present in that moment with my friend. And my friend said that the subjective experience of that was one of being completely loved. That's how he felt. So when he told me that story, I thought, sadly, of all the times in my life when I'm having a conversation with somebody and I'm kind of there and kind of somewhere else, like with the next person I have to talk to. I'm thinking about the next thing that I have to do. And it's sad because it wouldn't be that hard. It wouldn't be a a strange, huge kind of sacrifice to actually pay more complete attention in the moment. It's not giving up something too important. And to think that that's all it would take sometimes for somebody to have that subjective experience of being so deeply cared for is just paying attention. So they're very intertwined. We see that also when we do look at the world with quiet eyes. As Carol mentioned the other night, it's often taught that if we could get beneath our conditioning, if we could see ourselves as we actually are, we would see the nature of the mind as love, as compassion. I've heard that teaching since my first acquaintance with the teachings of the Buddha, which was 1971. And for a very long time I used to think, no way. There's a lot about this teaching, this tradition I find inspiring, I find compelling. I can really have faith in easily, but not this. I just don't, I don't buy that one. But at one point I did kind of an investigation, an analysis of my life. And I realized that there actually has not been a time when I have understood myself more clearly, more completely, and had less love, had less compassion. And in fact, there has never, ever been a time when I've understood someone else more completely, understood perhaps the the waves of conditions that have brought them to act in a certain way, all of the different influences and forces that have come together in their lives for them to be how they are. Never have I seen that with more insight, more clarity, and more understanding, and had less love. Never. So then I began to think, well, if wisdom brings me to this, and clear seeing brings me to this, and deeper understanding brings me to this, maybe it is the nature of the mind. And our problem is more one of not seeing so clearly. 
being lost in, in different reactions, different patterns of fear and desire and anger and so on. When we do see clearly, there is love and there is compassion and there is sympathetic joy and there is equanimity. These are the four Brahma-viharas. And in fact, in Pali, that's what the uh, residence buildings are named after, is Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upeka. Um, so the heat happens to be off in the compassion building. <laughs> but I presume it's going to be okay. And the, the view of life that the Buddha talked about is this sense of, of interconnection. So that when we see clearly, this is what we see. And there are many, many examples we can use for this. It said that there was a monk in the Buddhist time who had been extremely wealthy, came from a very aristocratic family before he ordained. Because of that, the other monks used to tease him a lot, and they would say things to him like, where does milk come from? And he would say, well, it comes from a golden bowl, because that's what he thought. That's all he'd ever seen, was the milk presented on the table in a golden bowl. And they'd say, where does rice come from? And he'd say, it comes from a silver bowl, because that's what he thought. And they just used to tease him and tease him. This is an example I always use when I'm teaching in Manhattan, which is where I'm from. Because you don't have to be from a very wealthy aristocratic family to be cut off and to not have a sense of the tremendous amount of conditions that are coming together for that food to appear on our table. Another example, the center that we founded in Massachusetts some years ago had its 20th uh, anniversary. And since we moved in on Valentine's Day, um, at that point 20 years before, we decided, well, you can't really have a good party in Massachusetts in February. So we waited till the summer, and we had this really big party to celebrate the 20th anniversary. We had many meetings to plan the celebration. And at one meeting, somebody said, well, in the course of the celebration, why don't we plant a tree? And I said, we have one retreat every year um, at IMS for teenagers, which is called the Young Adults Course. So I said, well, why don't we get one of the young adults to plant the tree? So we did that. Nowadays, which is almost four years later, you can go to Barry, you can go to IMS, go into the garden and see the tree. On one level, that tree can be seen just as a tree. It's a singular, solid entity existing in and of itself, alone. Or you can see the tree in a different way. You can look at the tree and also sense 
the earth, which has been nourishing it, and the people who have cared for that earth, who have stewarded that piece of property in a lot of different manifestations in different forms. And you can sense in looking at the tree the quality of the rain which is falling upon it and everything that is affecting the quality of that rain, the quality of the air and the sunlight and the moonlight and the wind. You can look at that tree and you can sense the history of that young adult who planted it. What brought them as a teenager to want to learn meditation? You can look at the tree and you can sense everything that has gone that had gone into sustaining that center, that institution for 20 years at that point. Sometimes I say, I can go into the garden and look at the tree and I see meetings. (laughs) I see meeting after meeting after meeting. (laughs) Because that's a part of what all came together in that moment in time for the tree to be planted on that piece of earth. We can go into the garden and look at the tree and see just the tree, or we can go into the garden and see the tree as the composite of all of these conditions, all of these relationships. That is also true. That vision, which is more a sensing than a seeing, is what we mean by the view of metta or loving-kindness. It's seeing things actually as they are. One of my other favorite fantasies, sitting up in front of a room full of people like this, besides hoping someone will invent that machine to amplify someone's thoughts, um, the other favorite fantasy is to to speculate, well, how many of us are actually sitting here right now in the sense of how many people or beings have you all thought of today? And we all thought of today. What if we counted them as being here in this room? And all of the beings that in some way inspired you or helped you so that you're here right now. People who gave you a book or people who cared for you in some way or told you about their retreat or somehow all those beings who inspired you to practice meditation, to look at life a little differently, to take a risk, to step away from the ordinary course of events, to look for a deeper meaning of happiness. What if they were all here? And what if all the people who've hurt you really badly were here? The people who in some way challenged you so strongly that it's almost as though they forced you to look for a deeper meaning of happiness, to step away from the ordinary or the conventional. What if they were here too? Starts to get really crowded. And the beings who created this hall, who built it, who made our clothes, who grew the food that we ate today. 
it gets to be more and more and more that are a part of this moment in time of our, our being here. I practiced very intensively in different uh, traditions of Buddhism for many, many years. I practiced primarily, although not exclusively, in traditions of Buddhism that were based in Southeast Asia, especially Burma. And then some years ago, I began to be uh, more intensively involved in different Tibetan traditions of Buddhism. And somebody once asked me how I'd made that transition. So I thought about it, and it was impossible to point to a single cause and say, oh, that's why, or that's when it started to happen. And I thought of something that happened in 1971 in India, something else that happened in um, 1990 in India. Then I thought, well, actually, a, a very strong conditioning force for that movement in my life was the fact that one year Joseph and I went to Russia to lead a retreat, and we arrived on the eve of the coup attempt against Gorbachev. So our retreat got canceled, and we had to leave. Because I had to leave Russia unexpectedly, I ended up in Paris at a time when I never thought I was going to be in Paris, and that's where I met my teacher, my Tibetan teacher. So sometimes when I think about all that, I think, well, could Gorbachev be part of the kind of karmic chain of links, you know, that brought me to, to explore Tibetan Buddhism more thoroughly? And I think, you know what, maybe so. If we could look at the world with quiet eyes, if we could really see, we would see such vastness in, in this interrelated network of events, which is how things actually are. We respond to that, the movement of the heart in response to that is the four Brahma-viharas. They are all functions of how we are paying attention, of the quality of our awareness. Metta, friendship, benevolence, loving kindness is the first. The second is karuna or compassion, which literally translated from the Pali means the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to pain or suffering. It's the movement of the heart in response to pain, whether our own or someone else's. And compassion is distinguished from a state of being shattered by that pain or being completely overcome by that pain, having our hearts really broken from that pain. There are many similarities between these states and compassion, but they're not really the same. It's said that within compassion there's a degree of sufficiency, there's a wholeness, there's an integrity, so that we can respond, we can actually move to help, to serve in some way, which is different than when 
we are just shattered by it. And it's easy to get those states confused. The first time we went to Russia, Joseph and I, to teach, it was many years ago, it was still the Soviet Union, and we went actually as part of a tour group. We were actually the morning before I left IMS, somebody came up to me in the hallway and said, well, you know, you're going to have to be really careful because I have a friend who went to teach meditation in Cuba and he got arrested. So I said, thank you. <laughs> That's really encouraging. <laughs> so we went and we were very careful. We, we, somehow our, our tour group leader um, never got us to go anywhere, but <laughs> we would just kind of disappear every afternoon and go teach in somebody's apartment with a translator. And I was speaking a lot about compassion, and I kept getting this really funny feeling. Um, whenever I would talk about it, it just seemed that this strange energy began to fill the room. So I finally sat down with the translator, and I said, when I say compassion, what do you say? And he said, oh, well, you know, I describe the state where it feels like your heart is just breaking and, you know, you're completely overcome by the pain and the suffering. It's like somebody took a giant stake and they drove it into your heart. <laughs> and I thought, well, no wonder, you know, I'm getting that really funny feeling. But we can confuse those states very easily. Compassion, while a verb, it's actually the, the active movement of the heart implies some quality of really vast vision, a really big perspective that isn't imploding, it's not contracting, it's not collapsing around the pain of the moment. The next Brahma Vihara, the next housing unit, <laughs> is sympathetic joy, <laughs> which is mudita in Pali. Sympathetic joy is the quality of mind that allows us to actually be happy in someone else's happiness, to take delight in someone else's happiness, rather than feel that because they are happy it's almost as though the opposite of sympathetic joy is the idea that happiness is a limited commodity in this universe, and the more someone else has, the less there's going to be left over for us. So very commonly, and it's extremely common, we look at somebody who's successful, having good fortune, they're happy in some way, and there is that voice inside us which says, you know, I would be a lot happier if you just had a little bit less going for you. You know, just a shade less good fortune, I'd feel better. So commonly we are threatened by someone else's happiness rather than realizing that their happiness is our happiness. It doesn't take away from our happiness, it is our happiness. The Dalai Lama once said something like, it only makes sense to cultivate sympathetic joy, joy in the happiness of others. Because after all, there are what, like six billion people on the planet? He said, if you can be happy when others are happy, then you're improving your own chances for happiness, six billion to one. <laughs> he said, those are very good odds. 
to actually feel that we can rejoice when others are happy instead of feeling something has been stolen from us, it's been taken from us. There's not enough in this world to include us as well is the, the function of sympathetic joy. And then the last is upeka or equanimity. Equanimity is also a difficult state to understand. It doesn't mean coldness or withdrawal or indifference. It doesn't mean we pull away from others, discounting their happiness or their suffering, saying, oh, it has nothing to do with me. Equanimity means balance of mind. It means being able to see things as they are and have that kind of big perspective. Equanimity is like a spacious stillness of the mind, which understands that life is a complex fabric of pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame, fame and disrepute, as the Buddha talked about the eight vicissitudes of life, that everybody in this world has pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. That's the nature of things. That's wisdom, is to see, yeah, this is how it is. But the balance or the equanimity, the clear seeing of that, doesn't detract from the heart's response in trying to help out of compassion or taking delight and sympathetic joy or offering the presence of friendship, of loving kindness. It's actually equanimity which allows those other states to be more genuine to be less limited, to be less afraid, to be less bound to our own needs, our own desires. So for example, it's said that equanimity endows loving kindness with patience. Because here we are. Maybe there's one friend who we've been offering metta to and will till the end of this retreat we hold them really dearly in our hearts and we care about them. And maybe we leave the retreat and they're no happier. They haven't gotten better according to our timetable, according to our idea, according to our agenda. Without equanimity, we're frustrated, we despair, we give up. Our own feelings of, of frustration take center stage. If we can have equanimity, then metta can actually be a gift. It's a freely offered gift. It's said that equanimity endows compassion with courage. Because it's not easy to open even to our own suffering, let alone the suffering in this world. It's not easy to genuinely pay attention without the ready habits of pretense and denial and repackaging and 
turning the other way. It's not easy. But equanimity can allow us to do that and at the same time not fall into that state of being so completely overcome that we have to shut down in the end. It said that equanimity is what allows sympathetic joy to even exist in a way. Of these four Brahma Viharas of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity, it's often taught that sympathetic joy is the most difficult. That basically, more or less, we are not cruel people. It's because in some situations we either cannot see the suffering or we're interpreting it as something else or it's being presented as something else. That's why compassion doesn't arise. But if we can see the suffering, then compassion will more readily arise. So for example, the Buddha talked about looking at our own states of anger and fear and jealousy, guilt, not as bad and wrong and terrible and worthy of condemnation and scorn and disgust and all of that. He talked about looking at those states when they arise in our minds as states of suffering. It's like relanguaging, revisioning how we see ourselves and all of these different experiences. What if we could look at our fear and look at our anger and look at all of those really distressing, undesired states, and we didn't call them or ourselves bad and wrong and terrible, but we actually perceived them as states of suffering. then instead of the rejection and instead of the splitting and instead of um, all of the aversive responses, we would feel compassion for ourselves. And in just that way, when we looked at others, if we really saw their suffering, compassion would arise. We don't always see it. We don't always see it in that way because the veil of interpretation can be very strong. But when we do, compassion can come forth. Sympathetic joy, on the other hand, takes a great degree of generosity of the spirit. One of my Burmese teachers, um, Upandita's, kind of uh, quizzes for me when I was doing the Brahma Viharas intensively in Burma was something like, imagine you're in a room and somebody you really don't like is also in the room. Also, beside that person in the room are all of these people you admire a lot and you want them to like you really a lot. And what they're doing is they're heaping praise upon this person that you don't like. <laughs> How do you feel, he'd say to me. <laughs> It's not easy to have that much generosity to say, wow. But here also, it's like compassion is our doorway because we look at this person who we don't like so much and they're being praised endlessly by all of these others 
and one might think, well, what do I really want? You know, do I want this person to just suffer completely, terribly till the day they die? Very occasionally we do, actually. <laughs> but a lot of the time we don't. And it's because we lose sight of the nature of things, that life is pleasure and pain for everybody that we are all so vulnerable to change, every single one of us, no matter what our circumstance, that there is no certainty, there is no security. That's the voice of wisdom. That's seeing clearly. Equanimity is, is the articulation of that voice. It's the articulation of wisdom. It's saying, here in the big picture, this is the nature of life. There's pleasure and there's pain and it comes and it goes. That everything changes. Even if we sat here till the end of time wishing for all beings to be completely happy, it's not going to happen. And that's not in the spirit with which we say it. We say it knowing full well it isn't going to be so. And yet, this is the expression of our deepest caring, our blessing for ourselves and for others, that we can hold the truth of life. We can see how connected we all are. We can understand in a way that the greatest confusion is that feeling of aloneness, of being split off, of being so separate. And by saying, by offering that wish, that aspiration for happiness, for peace, for safety, for ourselves or for others, in a way, it's like what we're talking about is a sense of solidarity, of joining, so that we're not imagining or saying that someone suffers and it has nothing to do with us, because it does. We're not saying that someone's existence way over there has no connection to our own existence right here and right now, because it does. So we use the phrases just as a way of acknowledging that, that there's a joining, there's a togetherness. The phrase in classical Buddhism is bodhisattva. It's a being who aspires for enlightenment, to enlightenment, with the understanding that their own freedom from suffering, their own enlightenment, is inextricably bound to the freedom from suffering of all beings. It's that, that kind of view or that kind of vision. I had a friend once who was a very um, good therapist, I was told, a really very, very fine therapist. And somebody came to see her once asking to be her client. It was somebody that she didn't like. And so she said no. 
But her reputation was such that this man really wanted to see her a lot. So he kept asking her. And she thought, well, she didn't like his politics and she didn't like his behavior. And there were many things about him she didn't like, but he wanted to see her as a client so badly that she finally said yes. And then she told me that because he became her client, her whole way of relating to him changed. She still didn't like all of those things about him, but now it's like they were on the same team with the goal of trying to help extricate him from all of that pain. So she necessarily felt that she was his ally in, in looking directly and honestly at these things that were so difficult. She said that in a way he became hers to care for. When she told me that, I thought of the bodhisattva, the being who sees all beings as theirs, as part of being on the same team going toward enlightenment. And I thought, what an incredible job description that is. You know, to be the ally of all beings everywhere. And yet this isn't just idealism. This isn't a removed or abstract way of thinking. This is actually a potential for how we can live. It depends on what we dedicate our energy to. I talked this morning about the Barrytown motto, being tranquil and alert. Some years ago, somebody was reading the rather slim volume that's the history of the town of Barry. And they came upon a passage written about this man named Colonel Gaston who built the, many of you perhaps have been to IMS or seen pictures of it, uh, the main part of the building was a private home. It was a mansion built by Colonel Gaston, who at one point was the Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts. And then as it changed ownership and went through all these different incarnations, different wings were built, but the main part was his house. So we're naturally very interested in Colonel Gaston. And it turned out that uh, Colonel Gaston also had a personal motto that he, uh, that was written about. It said that his motto was, you should live every day so that you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. <laughs> Which actually made me wonder how well he was getting along with his neighbors, you know, who perhaps were going around trying to be tranquil and alert. <laughs> but I think about that because I do believe, actually, we do have kind of mottos. We have, and they're often only half conscious, if half, <laughs> but we have dedications, we have understandings, we have concepts about what our lives mean, what's really significant, what we're capable of, what's most true, what's most important for us. And it doesn't have to be that small as you should live every day so you can look any damn man in the eye and tell him to go to hell. My Tibetan teacher, uh, Ken Rinpoche, 
really taught me that. He was talking about aspiration, and this is a, a very bad paraphrase, but he basically said, why do you think so little of what you can be and do, what you can accomplish in this life? Why do you have such a meager, sort of tiny, insignificant aspiration? Why not aspire to be a liberated being for the sake of all beings? Why not? Why not really open that sense of possibility and move beyond all of those habits of limitation? Because they are just habits. So why not? That doesn't mean it happens tomorrow. <laughs> But a lot depends on what we dedicate our energy to, what we dedicate our lives to, what we really believe is possible for us. A lot. We can dedicate our lives to qualities such as the four Pramaviharas and bringing them forth in ever-increasing and diverse situations. The actualization of that aspiration has to do with training attention. It has to do with learning how to look. And the neutral person who we spent the day with today is a wonderful example of that. Because here is this person who we really don't care about very much one way or the other. We don't especially like them. We don't especially dislike them. That's why they're the neutral person. And the common experience in the beginning is indifference. We don't really care much about them. That's why we chose them. But over time, what people discover is that just by paying attention in a sustained way, wishing that person well, something shifts, something transforms. And it's, it's both a lot of fun and it can be very powerful. Once I taught a, a metta retreat in Barry, and a friend of mine sat that retreat, who I didn't see again until about six months later when I was teaching a retreat in New Mexico. She came up to me in New Mexico, and she was all kind of beaming and bright, and she said to me, I've fallen in love with my dry cleaner. And I said, really? <laughs> That's very interesting. I'm happy for you. And, and she said, no, no, not romantically, but he was my neutral person <laughs> way back in that retreat in Barry. And, and I've just been you know, thinking about him every day when I practice, wishing him well. And she said, now I go into the shop and, you know, it's such an immense feeling for him. And it's like, I really hope he's okay and his family's okay and everything's going well. And I still don't know if she actually ever learned his name or anything of the story of his life or the circumstance. And it's not that, you know, again, it's not that she either had such an attunement to his particular personal suffering or owed him such a huge debt of gratitude. I mean, even if he was a great dry cleaner, 
you know, it's not that it was such an overwhelming sense of a benefactor. It was just because she paid attention to him that she came to care for him. This is what we notice. It all depends on how we look. And if we can sustain attention and include rather than exclude, if we can really see someone rather than overlook them, rather than push them away. To live in that way is to live with, it's like a secret source of happiness because it doesn't depend on anything. It doesn't depend on any circumstance. It's what we are bringing forth from within in response to the different circumstances. It's both free, it doesn't cost anything, and it can't be taken away. I had a really uh, wonderful experience this past summer when His Holiness the Dalai Lama came to New York City. He did three days of teachings in a theater that had been rented. And then he was giving a public talk in Central Park, which a very good friend of mine organized. And um, because it was a public talk that was free in the park, nobody had any idea of how many people would come. And what she'd done, she did many things to try to uh, advertise the event beforehand, including having, I'm told, um, these really giant posters made of the Dalai Lama that were put in every subway station in the city. So whenever you got on a subway, <laughs> you'd see him. And the day started to come. We were approaching the day when the public talk was going to happen, and it was pouring rain. It was just pouring and pouring and pouring the day before. So we woke up the next day, and it was such a, a great sense of really not knowing not having any idea whatsoever of how many people would come. And Joseph and I went to the park and uh, we could hear Tibetan chanting going on in the distance, but we couldn't see anything because of the entrance that we came in on. So we walked and walked and walked, and then we turned a corner and there were like 50,000 people there. <laughs> the official park estimates were 40,000, but the unofficial estimates were 80,000. And it was like, as far as the eye could see, there were people. And they kept streaming in and streaming in. People, friends of mine who'd come up by subway, said that the entire subway cars, <coughs> all of them were filled with people going to the park to hear the Dalai Lama. And you think, well, how do 80,000 people get to one place? You know, the experience starts long before they arrive as they begin to get there. And then we sat. There was this amazing quality of silence, even though there were so many people sitting there together. We just sat and waited. And finally, the Dalai Lama came, and he got up to speak. And the first thing he said was, you could, sat, you could tell this was the largest group he'd spoken to outside of Asia, and so you could tell he was quite moved by um, the ocean of people he was facing. He said, you know, from one point of view, if you look at my life, it hasn't been such an easy life. 
He said, I had to assume power when I was 16. I had to assume government office when I was 16. I had to flee into exile in my early 20s. I've had to lead my people <coughs> in exile. I've had to try to preserve the culture against all of the temptations and the disturbances. I've had to hear daily the reports of the suffering and the torture and so on that's going on in Tibet. He said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And then he said, but I'm pretty happy. <laughs> and of course he is. <laughs> um, and he said, the reason that I'm pretty happy is because of compassion. Is because I try to develop this sense of compassion in all of these different circumstances. And that's what supports me. That's, that's like the thread of meaning that brings me some kind of happiness, even though the circumstances can be so difficult. And it was so amazing because you could tell, like in that crowd of 50 or 60 or 80,000 people, there were lots of people who I'm sure could very easily say, you know, it hasn't been such an easy life. And to see an example of somebody who can acknowledge that, not trying to pretend it's other than that, and yet to have the quality of the heart sustained through the force of compassion is really quite extraordinary. The internal state of loving-kindness or compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity is the, the reservoir of, of understanding, of connection. How it manifests in any circumstance, any life situation, doesn't have to be very grandiose. It's like my friend with the Karmapa. It's more a quality of our wholeheartedness, our absolute presence, than anything else. I'll close with this poem by a woman named Naomi Shihab Nye, who's a Palestinian-American woman. Um, because I think this poem, which is called Famous, is, is very expressive of just that quality of simplicity and naturalness um, to our loving-kindness. She writes, The river is famous to the fish. The loud voice is famous to silence, which knew it would inherit the earth before anybody said so. The cat sleeping on the fence is famous to the birds, watching him from the birdhouse. The tear is famous briefly to the cheek. The idea you carry close to your bosom is famous to your bosom. The boot is famous to the earth, more famous than the dress shoe, which is famous only to floors. The bent photograph is famous to the one who carries it and not at all famous to the one who is pictured. I want to be famous to shuffling men who smile while crossing streets, sticky children in grocery lines 
Famous is the one who smiled back. I want to be famous in the way a pulley is famous, or a buttonhole, not because it did anything spectacular, but because it never forgot what it could do. So let's sit together for a few minutes. We're going to begin the next sitting at 9 o'clock rather than 9.15, so there'll be a shorter walking period. Um, and then we'll come back here uh, for the sitting and the chanting.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.